episode of Salty Thoughts with Tamal Dodge. We have a very special guest with us today visiting from the East Coast. This man is an international celebrated yoga teacher, punk rock icon, husband and father, philosopher, and India traveler. His name is Raghunath, and he currently resides in New York, living a bhakti yoga lifestyle with his wife and five children. We are honored to have you here today, Raghunath. Um, to be here. <laughs> We've been trying to get together for about years. four years, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> the coast divide us, coast yeah. to coast. Um, I know we have a lot of things in common, bhakti yoga, yoga teaching, and other things, and uh, we're going to kind of go over a variety of topics today, but let's trail it back. Um, you have a very fascinating, interesting life. Let's start with where you grew up. First of all, thanks. And uh, you have a fascinating, interesting life. <laughs> and uh, the only reason why I know of you is because so many people that I love and respect speak highly of oh. you. So <laughs> thank you for having me. Um, what was the question? Where you grew up? Oh, where I grew up. I grew up in uh, Connecticut, like a regular small suburban town, big Italian family, um, six out of seven kids. Um, and at a young age, I sort of just wasn't into the high school scene mm. and was wanted to live a little bit more of an alternative lifestyle. My older brothers had already moved uh, and sisters had moved to New York City. My parents grew up in New York City. And so we were sort of like a very New York influence. Like New York was the hub. That was yeah. where you got to go. And so um, that's where all relatives live. So I would just take trips when I was 14 to New York. And I saw just hanging out in Greenwich Village, like the same thing people did in the 60s. is like there's an alternative culture going on there, much different than typical um, suburban Connecticut high schools. Yeah. Um, the culture, the look, they were sort of edgy, progressive. Um, and so... Um, I was like, I could get into that. Yeah. And it's, I, I had a hard time trying to fit. I mean, I was like a popular kid in school, but yeah. I had a hard time like embracing that culture as my culture. And so from a young age, I just started, you know, hanging out, um, going to clubs. And I don't know, for some reason in the 80s, they would let any kid in a nightclub. <laughs> you didn't even check your ID. I had a fake ID, but we would just go to... I was interested in seeing live bands, and I wasn't interested in seeing other people play other people's music like, you know, uh, this is Dirty Deeds playing yeah. the eight, best of ACDC. I wanted to see people make their own music. And so we went to these small little clubs, which are like you know, the Mud Club, CBGBs, the Ritz, Danceteria, and see music play live. And that was sort of my like escape. And I'd come back on Monday, I'd go all weekend, come back on Monday morning, we're like, that was incredible. Yeah. And like, and no, it was like my own private little secret, me and maybe two other kids out of my huge suburban high school. And then uh, we stumbled upon punk and hardcore, which was just sort of emerging on the Lower East Side. And um, the Lower East Side was like incredibly ghetto back then. <laughs> like right now, it's a sort of a cool place, a little alternative. It was a ghetto yeah. and a dangerous ghetto. And we used to go to clubs and you'd have to sort of travel in packs. And there was, always this, there was always fear like, 
you're going to go down tonight. There was always that fear, like, it could be me. And plus, the kids I was actually hanging out with were dangerous. They were dangerous. I wasn't. I grew up from a you know a good you know loving family, so I wasn't uh, really that much of a troublemaker. But um, the people around then were sort of just the kids that were. They were all sort of like me, but they were sort of like rebelling hard, yeah. like and getting into serious drugs and serious. I mean, serious drug issues with young kids or running away from home. And at that time, the thing to do was move into burnout buildings. Yeah. And live in burnout buildings. You get a pit bull, you go in there, you chase out the junkies, and you live in a burnout building, and you squat a building. I never did that, and um, uh, I'm okay with that. <laughs> but I would come up on the weekends, and that was sort of like the people we hung out with, and all these people were making their own music, and he grew up with stuff like the Bad Brains and Minor Threat, yeah. and um, uh, one one guy uh, who was a year younger than me, and his his autobiography just came out quite a fascinating life and incredibly you know tough life and violent yeah. life and sort of like it was it could be made into an action movie but um this the autobiography of Harley Flanagan but he sort of befriended me at a young age and he was sort of a leader of a gang <laughs> and he because he liked me he sort of gave me a free pass not to get my ass kicked yeah and um, because people said, oh, this guy, Harley knows this guy. And so anyway, I would just somehow scraped, uh, you know, snuck on through that whole part of my life without getting seriously my butt kicked, really. But it was a sort of a dangerous way to grow up, but it was sort of exciting and fun. And I got to, then I very quickly started a band and our band got popular and we were an integral part of the growing of, the straight edge scene that sort of like evolved originally the seed from minor threat but uh youth of today which was my first band um really popularized it as a culture youth straight edge became more of like some principles straight edge became a culture yeah and um it was never planned that way but because we looked and my sort of group of people that we hung out around with we had a unique look to us we didn't sort of opt into a punk look we looked very athletic because we were really yeah. into health. We were really into vegetarianism. We were really into um, just clean living and positive attitudes. And it wasn't a popular thing in that scene. Yeah. That scene was really into drugs, really into sort of like a, you know, sort of a dirty punk, it Doc Martens. Yeah, it was, it was, it was actually the, op <laughs> it was a complete opposite. You know, it might have, they might have said, said, said PMA and positive mental attitude, but it was, no one was positive. Everybody was violent. It was yeah. incredibly violent. And so um, when Youth of Today, I think the real groundbreaking thing for that first band of Youth of Today and what sort of like catapulted us to be sort of a, one of the seminal bands in that um, oh, genre. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I get people literally... That, my wife is not from the music scene, so <laughs> I'll get people like, I'm like, you know, bring my you know pickup truck to uh, the Ford dealer and the guy comes behind the <laughs> counter and goes, oh my God, were you in Youth of Today? I'm looking at your name. That's you, right? You were Ray Capo. <laughs> So you know, weird things that blow her mind. Like, like, what were you? What did you do? <laughs> so, um, uh, the, I think the real thing that made Youth of Today stand out was we just were very vulnerable and would speak about topics which people wouldn't touch, which which was like very spiritual topics. Because yeah. I was really influenced by the Bible. I was really influenced by the Bhagavad Gita and uh, Buddhist Dhammapada. And these books sort of like spoke to me at a young age, and I felt like these are eternal messages. And when you put like a thing and you write a song in that scene, 
about forgiveness, it's sort of like, what? Yeah. And so there's a lot, you know, or about nonviolence or about not being racist or about having a positive attitude or, ha- or the problems, you know, what go- goes around comes around. And when you start writing that, there are, it attracted a bunch of other people who liked that music but didn't want to opt in to violence and yeah. heavy drugs and, and um, you know, just sort of like a degraded lifestyle, but just thought the music was cool and edgy. And, and that the culture, almost like the branding, <laughs> before there was an idea of branding, or at least we didn't even know an idea, but there was a branded look we had, which was sort of like athletic and um, clean cut, yeah. et cetera. And it became sort of a, a scene within a scene. And then we didn't realize it, but it, it really took off internationally. Yeah. To the point where as it exists internationally now. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, you know, and I'll get everywhere. When I do do a reunion, which I do occasionally, um, you know, you get anywhere from like, you know, a 49-year-old guy to a, you know, a 17-year-old who are just like, yeah. I'm, Bonding. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very peculiar. And uh, I, I had no idea it would last as long as it lasted. But Oh, yeah. I um, think... I think it's kind of wild in general, so many of the things that kind of spawned or were offshoots from all of that. I remember being like 13 or 14 years old and there was a kid I used to hang out with and one day he's like, I'm straight edge. I'm like, what the hell straight edge? And <laughs> I people, know, it people, just became a thing. Yeah, it was like, a, people it was like part of pop culture. And if you don't know what straight edge is, really like exactly the opposite of what most people think rock star stuff should be. It's no sex, no drugs, no eating animals. It's like this really pure way of living. But to me, that's almost the most punk rock thing you could do because punk right. rock is supposed to be about doing the things that the least traveled, right? Sure. And now sex, drugs, and rock and roll is like the most celebrated. So if you do the, the road that's least traveled, that's like hardcore. <laughs> well, the interesting thing was um, we pushed it to the next step with our next band, which was Shelter. Right. Um, because what happened was I went, you know, at a certain point I got into this idea of self-care and self-love and connection to spirit and source. And it just brought me to like, actually this whole scene is nonsense. Everything about this is nonsense. And then I just quit it and I, um, got uh, super interested. I was already practicing, uh, yoga, but I really was more interested in yoga for a connection to spirit more than I wanted to learn how to do a handstand or do a handstand on my fingertips. Or was, I couldn't care. <laughs> truthfully, I couldn't care less about that. Um, I mean, now people know me in the yoga scene like, oh, he does this cool pose and he does that. And yeah. I, 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 that's not why I got into yoga. It's I like to do it. I'm an athletic person and stuff like that. But I really got into it because I felt like the Indian culture had a very broad understanding of spirit and it was very inclusive as opposed to exclusive. Yeah. And, and so it, it really inspired me for like the next six and a half years to become a monk and uh, take, it, take it really seriously and quit the band at, 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 at its height of popularity. Which and is so, hard to do. It's quitting something that has you know, so much like it. You guys are at your pinnacle. You're at this peak. And you know, I know. You know, it, it was. And that's why it was sort of, it was also sort of like, he gave it up now? <laughs> After they, were, they, uh, they got to the stop. But for me... It, it, it might seem like it was hard to do, but truthfully, my heart was so interested in spirit yeah. that it was it was not a choice for me. It was like, of course, I'm going to give this up. Uh, you know, um, it's not like I didn't love it and didn't appreciate it and didn't think like it got me to a where I want it to go. Um, and it, it, in retrospect, now, 50 years old, I think, thank God for that band. It saved my life in so many ways. Um, 
Uh, and it was a very cool thing because there was like a posse. I mean, on the weekends, we'd have like hundreds of kids yeah. come to New York City and hang out and <laughs> go to shows and put on our own shows. And we started our own record label. And um, we started putting out all my friends. You know, I founded Revelation Records, which yeah. is now in Huntington Beach. But we started the idea of the record label is we just want to document these bands before they disappear. Yeah, and that was like a whole thing, and it became a sort of famous niche label for this type of music. And so then my, my uh, journey to sort of a spiritual life and living in an ashram and studying bhakti yoga, I just was like, wait a second. You're not supposed to, the more you actually, and this is the beauty about, you know, Indian culture, yoga culture, the Vedas and stuff like that. It's not, it's not like giving up something is going to make you spiritual, Yeah. but taking something that is your gift, you have a gift and in using that gift in spirit, that's how to spiritualize the world. hundred percent. Hundred percent, hundred percent. It makes so much sense, it's but a dovetail. but I can see, yeah, but I can see how um, something like, for example, something like me, music is a good example. But I'm sure people can understand in their own workplace that it's very easy to get caught up in fame, yeah, or greed, or lust, or envy. Envy when you want to be that next bigger band and there's a band above you and then there's a band under you trying to get to your position. And even though you might think you're over those things, like you might think you're over greed until you get a lot of money. Yeah. Then, you're, then, <laughs> then you got to deal with, can I handle this money? Yeah. I'm not into greed. I'm not into money. These people with money, it's not a test. If you don't have no, any money, that's not a test if you're greedy or not. It's when you handle money, how do you handle it? If you have tens of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars put upon you. So I never got that rich from being in a band, but, <laughs> um, um, but I did get popular from it. And because of that, I had to deal with all these other things like envy and competition and these things that sort of plague the heart and they kill sort of like the spirit of why I was doing it in the first place. And I noticed as I got more famous, it was like an energy I couldn't. I couldn't handle almost like if a child was to handle um, electricity, you know, sometimes they have those safety yeah. um, things that go in the electric plugs. So kids just want to stick their knife in the electric <laughs> socket, you know, but electricity is not evil, but you just in the hands of a child, it's problematic. Yeah. So in the same way, electricity is a great thing. If it's used by electricians, someone who's very qualified but in the hands of a person who has no idea to how to deal with these energies, it causes big problems. It burned you. And I found myself getting burned up by this popularity and by fame and by um, uh, competition and envy and all the things that the great masters of all spiritual traditions warn you about. Yeah. What are the enemies? Is it Trump? Is it Hillary? Is it... you know? The, the enemy is kama, kroda, loba, lust, greed, anger, envy. It doesn't matter if you're living behind, you know... The Soviet Union Iron Curtain, you know, 1969, and you, you, you're not allowed to practice any type. The real things, it, it's not a political thing. It's an internal thing. Even if you live in a f completely free country where there's no one's going to say, hey, you can't meditate. That's against the law. You know what I mean? We're going to haul you away. You can be in prison and be a liberated soul. Or you can be free in the forest and be an addict. Right, and be yeah. addicted to your tongue, your belly, your genitals. Your your mind is out of control, and you're living f so called free. So it's 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 not a 
and, and of course, there's, of course, it's always better to have a government that's supportive and you know nurturing and kind. But our imperative for our spiritual life is our issue, because you can become a, a transcendentalist no matter what the government is, or no matter what situation it is, or like I said earlier, even if you're in like solitary confinement. Yeah, and I, some of, and some of the best stories are of these oh people gosh, yeah. or who who live in these places where there's no human rights, but they have managed to find some incredible, you know, deep realization, inner peace. You know, they they've become transcendentalists. I, I look at people like Saint John of the Cross. If you read his writings, he is in a dungeon. He's been arrested. He's in a dungeon that is the size of. Well, let's say it's four feet by like eight feet. No light, nothing. And one of the guards, everybody gives him slop, but then started letting him have a little piece of paper and like some charcoal. And the stuff that he wrote down that he experienced while he's in hell, basically, it's like straight out of the, the Yoga Sutras of what God-realized souls talk about. Unbelievable stuff. So it's just like what you're saying. You can be in jail, be liberated. You can be in, in the forest and, you know, be imprisoned. I always tell people that people are like, oh man, well, if I move to Hawaii and sell all my junk and I move out into the jungle, I can meditate, bro. Sure. And I'm like, well, you go out into the jungle, you sit by that perfect waterfall to find quiet and peace. You sit in a lotus position. In five minutes, mosquitoes are going to eat you alive, bro. <laughs> because it's not necessarily about changing your sky, your location. It's about changing your heart and your mind. And like you're saying, dovetailing your, your gifts and your talents to something that is fruitful. Sure. Sure. And music, like anything, music can cause you to be a big asshole. It can, it can cause you to be, uh, you know, to ruin your life. Or you can use it to liberate your life. Yeah. And money, you can use for great things. Or you can use to keep you materialistic, tied. To, it's not like money's evil. Yeah. Money's, it depends how you spend energy. your money. It's just energy. And energy needs to be harnessed towards light instead of darkness, towards spirit instead of bondage. It's it's that simple, and, and and the real trick of life is to is to how to be that expert electrician, so to speak, and use that energy to light up the town, light up the life, light up your life, light up people in your life's light uh, life, yeah. instead of just frying everybody. Yeah. And people do that all the time. It's, it's like called that. narcissism. <laughs> narcissism is just like to or a sell you know addiction or it's like. It, these people like, like they ruin their life and everybody else's life around them. Everybody touches them. Yeah. So that's what we're doing. We're practicing like handling energy, and it's a dance. We're like we're trying to figure it out. And as we become better at that, we actually become liberated from this world. Yeah. Like we're in the world, but we're not of this world. Every every saint and sage have spoke used the, a phrase similar to this. You're in it, but you're not of it. Yeah. And it's it's a it's it's what we aspire as yogis. Yeah. Much more than a one-legged crow on our <laughs> fingertips. Exactly. You know, right. it's 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 one of those things where um, you're living in this world, and there's so much distraction and so much going on. And if you can add some of these spiritual insights into your life, you learn how to navigate yourself through the trials and tribulations of this greed, lust, anger, frustration, pain, and sorrow. And like you are saying, you can dovetail it all and uplift yourself and uplift other people and live a life that is worthwhile. Um, I always think it's really um, fascinating 
you know, to hear people's stories like yours where you did all these wild things and came through all this different periods of time. Like in the 80s, New York was crazy. It was crazy. I, I mean, it's, insane. I, it's, it's hard like, to even explain it to people. But we, you'd watch incredible, like, random acts of violence. The people I hung out with did random acts of violence, and you never knew if it was going to turn on you one day. And I, I don't know what even drew me there. It was sort of like, a, you know, people like to hang out in scary things. Yeah. You know what I mean? It gives some type of excitement. My life is boring at home. I want to do something exciting. I'm blessed that I never got into drugs. Never did, you know, very, very minor. We never got, yeah. compared to the people I was doing, nothing. You know what I mean? And not only that, there was an accountability within a straight edge scene. Mm. Like I was a leader of a straight edge movement. Yeah. I'm not going to do any drugs anyway. And so we had our own like su- sort of like support system. But I was like lucky that I, I like I got out of there alive. You look at things like the 80s, man. If you think about the cocaine that hit, AIDS that became rampant. <laughs> Everybody died. I know. So we watched our friends die of AIDS. Buildings, like you're saying, people squatting in buildings. Buildings were being burned down in New York intentionally. Like crazy (laughs) shit was going on in the 80s. I know. And then you. I know. And also really cool music, underground hip hop, you know, Madonna, the Beast Boys, Slayer. All this stuff was like coming out of the Lower East Side. That was like, and everybody sort of knew each other. We all sort of knew each other. We all rolled with the same people back then. Yeah. Went to these same clubs, hung out. It was a it was a cool time. It was a cool scene to be a part of in a lot of ways, and um, I'm sort of very grateful for it. Yeah, you know, it's how um, your life has kind of unfolded and evolved um, through this podcast and you sharing your thoughts. Where did India first come into play? And what was your experience there like? You know, um, it's interesting because uh, one of the things I do. I say for a living. It's like I've never really had a job except being a singer of a band and been a yoga teacher, and both of them don't even seem like jobs. People say, "What do you do for a living?" I was like, "I don't know." I don't... <laughs> What's your occupation? I was like, "Oh, I, I guess I, I'm an adult. I have children. I have a house. I guess I have an occupation." But I never look at it as a job. When I always say, "Yeah, I'm for my service," I call it my service. Yeah, because I feel like it's my life's service. But yes, it's an occupation. One of the things I do for my occupation is I take people on pilgrimage. And it's like one of my greatest joys I do. And because um, I, India is just like a magical place. Even today, yeah. even today is incredibly magical. You just got to know where to sniff around because yeah. it's still there. It just gets covered over just like in L.A. You can imagine, you know, what, where we are right now. We're in Marina del Rey or Culver yeah. City. You can imagine what it was like 100 years ago. Yeah. And if you were here 100 years ago. You might not even recognize this place. Yeah. You know, these houses weren't here. So it's like if you know what it was like before it was built up and if you know the spiritual um, teachings, you know where to go, what to look for, who to find. And it makes the, the journey less of a, a tourist thing or even a backpacker thing. But you're going on a pilgrimage in the same way. You know, for example, go to some place like Rishikesh. So Rishikesh was not just visited by modern saints and swamis, not just the Beatles, and not just Vivekananda, and not yeah. just, you know, Yogananda, and not just, you know, people can go to Rishikesh. Ram went to Rishikesh. Mm-hmm. You know, Balaram didn't fight in the battle of the Mahabharat. He went on pilgrimage to Rishikesh. Lakshman mm-hmm. went to Rishikesh. You know, yeah. these are all like, people have been going on pilgrimage for millennia to these places. The oldest books in the world, the Vedas, speak about places like Rishikesh, or Pushkar, like Pushkar, we were in Pushkar last year. 
Pushkar is visited by Vishwamitra lived in Pushkar. Mm. We're naming yoga poses after Vishwamitra, yeah. and Vishwamitra's ashram is in Pushkar. You know, Prahlad, you know, uh, Yudhisthir, all in Pushkar. These are pla- yeah. places like, they're not thousands of years ago. They're millennia ago. And so it's, it's, it's like you're almost like tapping into like an ancient world. So I went to India in 88, and that was, um, truthfully, the whole world was different then. But India especially because, if, and it's, it's hard to believe for most people because we grew up in a cell phone world. There's no cell phones. So when I went to Vrindavan, there was one phone in the village. And if you wanted to call home, you have to go in a rickshaw, find the guy with the phone, hope he's there. <laughs> and you'd call on this lousy line and you'd pay for your call. And also it was before internet. Yeah. And um, the internet's really assisted the homogenization of the world. And, and um, that's something, especially if you're sort of my age, you can see it more. I used to go to Europe, you know, in the 80s and 90s and stuff like that. And you could, see, you know, you go to Germany and people dress German. Or people go to Austria, people dress Austrian. You go to England, people dress English. <laughs> and even though they're all wearing jeans and stuff, it's slightly different. Yeah. And you could be like, that, you know, he, that guy looks so German or that guy looks so... <laughs> you say that or like, nah. You know, I'd always like, uh, you know, and I know coming from... It sounds like... But it was just... It, places were different. Yeah. Just like New Orleans was yeah. different. Just Beverly Hills was different. Go to Beverly Hills and go to New Orleans. You go to the same Victoria's Secret, the same Gap. They're all... It's a homogenized culture. Yeah. There's no unique... You're not going to... I go to Paris for silk. I don't... No one goes anywhere. It's just all the same. Yeah. So in the 80s, before, before internet and stuff, you would just notice, like, even in Europe, even though it's very Western, every country you go to is slightly different. Yeah. Then we show up in Italy, everyone's dressed exponentially better than we are. Yeah. The poorest <laughs> people are best dressed better than us in Italy. You know, you're, um, so nowadays you never see that. Nowadays it's a homogenized culture. All over you go. Someone in downtown LA is dressed in the same way in Thailand, the same way in India. You know, you might not get, uh, you know, even the poorest people dress in a fashion. You know what I mean? So back, my point is, going back pre-internet to India, you felt like you were on some lonely, uh, isolated place, like in some island. And... um People might say, "Well, what good is that?" You know, you're sort of cut off from all cultures. Yeah, yeah. You are. There's a beauty about being cut off from cultures. That's why people go into reclusion or go into, you know, have um, uh, sometimes. I just want to get alone. I want to get away from everything. I want to write a book or whatever. People cut themselves off in good ways as well. And so you have this place like India, which be, which has been a spiritual hub forever it's been a spiritual hub it doesn't have a spiritual book it's got canons of spiritual literature people would come from all over the world to hear from the the sages you can still find them every every question you have on metaphysics or on spirituality you know um astronomy astrology um you know ancient medicine you know siddha medicine the you know the the medicine of the uh the mystics yeah it's like, it's so interesting and so fascinating. And there's canons of literature about it. And so uh, going there pre-internet was especially special because it's like, it felt like it was untouched in a mm. lot of ways, you know. And so um, I still go. I still love it. I still have, I still have a spiritual experience. But I will say that um, 
it, it was special to go at that time. I'm glad I got a glimpse of it. And I encourage people, go on a pilgrimage. Don't go as a bad... Find, I'm not trying to sell myself. You want to go with me, I'll take you too. But go with someone who has an appreciation for the culture and the spiritual practices and go on a pilgrimage. Yeah. Because the thing, it's very easy to cement over a whole town. And then you have places like sort of like... You know, you go to sort of like Athens, but no one's worshiping Athena. You know, or you, you know, you know, no one's yeah. worshiping Zeus, and yeah. then you go to the pyramids, and it's just like it's like a cemented over culture. India's got actually India. One interesting thing about the information age is people who were spiritual searchers, they've connected with India in mm-hmm. a lot of ways, and they've resurrected resurrected a lot of these dying arts. You know, in the same way languages die, like the original language of Ireland, you know, it's practically dead. You know, a few people speak it. So it's like that all over the world with language. But cultures are just getting cemented over. But a lot of the times, because of India is such a rich culture, it's Westerners or even Eastern Europeans that have taken some of the, you know, Ayurvedic medicine and resurrected these things, Indian dance and resurrected these things, Indian cooking and resurrected these things that we're getting... You know, we're, it's really easy just to say, you know what, I'm not going to learn Indian cooking. Just give me a prepackaged whatever, you know. Yeah. We don't, you know, Americans have no concept of health in so many ways. We're just sort of like, you know, our concept of what healthy is is a bar. We eat a bar. <laughs> Would you have a breakfast? I just had a bar, man. I feel good. It's like, are you kidding? Let's hit the gym. Let's hit the gym. <laughs> I had a bar. Like, a bar isn't healthy. It's like, you know what healthy is? You take fresh things and you prepare it with love. That's yeah. healthy. When you prepare things with love, you're eat, we tend to think, we see it's like so black and white. I'm cooking food, I eat food. You don't eat food, you eat energy. And when that food is prepared with love, you're eating the love. Yeah. And that's a lot different than buying at where some guys just, you know, just chopping up stuff and frying up stuff and here's some stuff. It's different. Yeah. And so that culture is understood. And we've tried to isolate it. Okay, no, it seems like figs are healthy and dates are healthy and like almonds are healthy. We'll chop them all up and blend it all up and mix it. And, you know, and we sell people bars and that's health food. I think, you know, there's so much that's to be said about your intention about things. I, I talk about in yoga teacher trainings that, you know, we talk about offering food, we talk about, you know, uh, saying mantras and blessing food and things like that. And I tell them about this book that's called hidden messages of water where this Great guy, book. yeah, he Great takes, book. the guy takes photographs of these microscopic water crystals. Crystals are formed in water and they're microscopic and he liked to photograph them, but they're very aloof and hard to find. And one day he's trying to photograph this water crystal and it was partially formed and he's getting frustrated. And he took this bottle of water that he had been pouring little bits of the water out to photograph and he just set it down next to some speakers that were playing classical music. He's like, God, oh, how can I get these water crystals? How can I find more of them? And oh, let me see if I can photograph it again. And he takes the bottle of water, pours it out and puts it under this microscope and all of a sudden it's filled with these water crystals. So then he made the connection that the only thing that had changed is he put it next to this water, the water next to this classical music. So then he started saying positive things to water and all of a sudden it would always form water crystals. And then he would say something negative to the water, destroy it. And I tell people that you can see physical change on an element like water from saying negative or positive things, physical change. Mm. What kind of changes are happening that you can't even see when you're doing spiritual things with food, water, whatever it is. Like you're saying, cooking with love. 
is completely different than cooking with anger. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, you go to a restaurant, you didn't know some guy's cooking your food like, oh, shit, I hate my guy. Yeah, yeah, I hate my preparing. job, I hate my wife, <laughs> I hate my whatever it is. And, you're, and eating you're eating it. it. <laughs> you're eating it. And you think, this is good chicken or whatever. You know, you're- it's like there's so much stuff that goes on that's, um, you need spiritual eyes to see it, not material eyes to see it. And spiritual eyes is just having the wisdom and knowledge behind what's going on. Um, I think it goes along, along, along the lines of things that you were saying. And, you know, India uh, is one of those wild and magical places that I know you take people to regularly. When's your By the next- way, I have to drop in because it just reminded me the thing about water is one of the practices before you do any religious function in India is you do what's called akshman. I'm sure you know that when you, you take water, you put it in your right hand, you take a little spoon, put it in your right hand, and then you chant mantras into the water, and then you sip the water. Yeah. And it's purifying. It's actually, it's like <laughs> putting God <laughs> in the water and then drinking that. Yeah. It's very interesting. Uh, I, I look at it also like this. Even that guy's book, Hidden Messages of Water, your body is 75% water when you're born. Exactly. 75% water. And people all day long are like, I hate you, you asshole, all this stuff. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you, people are feeling emotionally. There's a physical change. And then you don't mm. know other kind of things, psychological and subtle things that are happening. So saying spiritual things is taking it even further than mm. positive. It's a step it's further, further than, than po- positive. It's, a, it's outside of positive. It's, it's outside. Exactly. It's yeah. transcendental. Um, you know, and then there's a, a word that I think is really uh, a great word in Japanese culture. It's kotodama, which means your words carry spirit. Mm. Your words carry a spiritual essence. And it's if you choose to honor the kotodama. So that's why you find little old Japanese grandmas watering plants saying, I love you, you're beautiful. Because uh-huh. they're carrying the spirit of kotodama. They're trying to be positive and loving. And if you're saying like horrible negative things, you're not carrying that spirit. You're not carrying the kotodama. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. That's great. Um, when's your next pilgrimage? Uh, September 24th, I think, or 23rd. Awesome. Yeah. I always see Sorry. the photographs. It's so beautiful. You know what? It's so like beautiful. I get so many people sign up just because they see the photographs on my uh, Facebook um, page because everything is so photogenic there. <laughs> and, and, you know, I try to lead it like a pilgrimage, means we're very careful about what comes out of our mouth, the sound vibrations that come out of our mouth. This is a good practice I do when I do leader-teacher training also. We make commitments that we are not going to criticize for the duration of this pilgrimage. I'm not going to complain for the duration of this pilgrimage. I'm not going to find fault randomly for the duration of this pilgrimage. If I got some big issue, I'm going to internalize it. Or I'm going to speak privately in a non-confrontational way, but in a more therapeutic way. And when we make these commitments about being explicitly careful about what comes out of our mouth, it changes you. Especially if you're a person that loves to criticize. It starts boiling up almost like a, um, skimming the fat off, you know, when you make ghee, you heat butter <laughs> and all the fat comes to the top and you skim that fat off. It starts to come up and purif- purify us, and, and sometimes in ugly ways. We realize how much how negative I am when I when I stop doing something. I realize how attached I am to that thing. But what it also does, it creates an atmosphere with other people where they feel safe that they're not going to be judged or criticized. And then you just start dealing with people's souls. 
and their souls are very delicate and they're very vulnerable and they're very honest and forthcoming and it creates an incredible bubble to experience things like sacred sound mm. and mantras and kirtan and holy places and holy people and bathing in the Ganges and things like that. And um, truthfully, that's the way to go on pilgrimage. Nowadays, what, what happens is we go to pilgrimage and unless you're checked with these like disciplines, you just bring your crazy world brain into these holy places. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's like going into a, uh, you know, a formal gathering or a wedding and you're wearing like underwear and you're covered in, you know, filth. You, know, you, you dress up, clean yourself up, you put on nice clothes and you go to a wedding. But we're bringing our dark consciousness because in our, the, in, especially in the Western culture, but now it's every culture, we're just consuming crazy things, like consuming it on a regular basis. I, fe I felt victim to this the other day because my wife got a new car and it's got the Sirius FM in it. <laughs> and I was like, what the hell is this thing? And you get like four months of free Sirius. <laughs> I was like, okay. Like, and I don't like to even listen to the news. I like to check in with the news. But for the most part, it's not a legitimate, fair idea of what's going on in the world. You're always going to get at the angle. Yeah. We understand that nowadays. Everything is slanted. <laughs> and the, a little bit uh, of propaganda a little, hinted the, in the, there. You know, the Americans have one idea of manifestation, uh, of manifest destiny of what we did to North America, and then the Native Americans will have another opinion about <laughs> exactly. it. And so uh, the Americans and the American Revolution have an opinion, and the British have a whole other opinion what happened in the American Revolution. So... Um, I'm driving and I'm plucking this one channel. Like I clicked onto forensic files. Have you ever heard of that? Forensic files is like I don't know if it's a radio show. It's incredibly popular, <laughs> but but it's got its own station. I'm yeah. serious. But it's one horrible murder story oh, after another. But they're incredibly gripping. Like they suck you right in, <laughs> and then he and it's all dramatically. And then he was shot three times in the head. And you're like, whoa. And it's like this whole gripping like mystery and the case was solved, but it's all dark. Yeah. And um, I listened to it and I got, I got sucked into it. It's like a slippery slope. And I tell you, I did this for three days. When my kids were out of the car, I was like, I'm going to listen to the forensic files. And I'm, I'm very careful about what I listen to. But for some reason, I was like, I'm, I was really let my guard down here. And after day three, I was like, I'm never listening to this again. <laughs> I am never allowing that type of sound into my temple again. Yeah. And so we have to like create like a lot of discernment. So we before um, this is all going back. When we go to India, we gotta we gotta go with these disciplines and parameters. And then hopefully what we hope is we appreciate them and we bring them back to our life. Yeah. Not that we're just going for a quick I went a great vacation, I went to Aruba, it was great, the water was great. But we actually learn type of disciplines that we bring back into our life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's got to be one of those life-changing experiences that creates change. Yeah. You know, people say, oh, it's life-changing, but if there was no change, that was a ripple effect or some kind of um, a series of events that take place after. Um, I always say a life-changing experience should create change. Nice. You know? And as it creates that change and you apply it to your life, you're never the same again. And, you know, I know some of the people you've taken on some of those pilgrimages, and they're not the same. And I, <laughs> it's... It's like you said, creating that environment. It's such a Vedic culture is such a beautiful, enriching, magical, exciting thing. You know, there's so much to it. Like you're saying, the mantras, the the, the prayers, the offering of food, the philosophy, everything that's out there um, creates a full-on 
experience and uh, an inspiration for a lifestyle change because it's a lifestyle. It's not just an hour and a half on a yoga mat. It's something that you live and you breathe. Like you're saying, I'm not going to even listen to this stuff anymore. Right. There's these changes that you decide to make that are going to uh, give you a specific parameter of how your life is going to be. And, you know, it's like if somebody wants to do, you and I both have done jujitsu before. And if you want to do jujitsu right. and you want to be good at jujitsu, forgot you did jujitsu. You got to do it regularly. Yeah, you can't be like the guy who goes, "Oh, I did it once this week, and then no, yeah, I'm going to do it again in six months." You're always going to be, you're going to suck. Yeah, you're going to get your butt kicked all the time. If you're that guy who's on the mat minimum four times a week, you're going to progress, and you're going to have huge leaps and bounds. Same thing with everything in life. It's about consistency. If you want to be making spiritual uh, leaps and bounds and creating spiritual uh, hurdles and jumping over them. You have to have consistency in your spiritual life so you create an environment that you're going to live in and live by mm. and then those changes happen um you know my father was a wild spiritual person and i remember him telling me a story about offering your food or blessing your food and um he was like you know i didn't really understand how to offer my food until i was about 17 18 years old he said that yeah and my father was telling me you know it's different than grace. He's like grace in our, in American culture is like, thank you, God, forgive me, give me, give me, keep giving me. And I'll keep praying. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's you as the receiver, God as the servant kind of, kind of mentality. It's still nice, but it's not the full picture. And you go to India, people are face down on the floor saying, God, you please have this first. He's like, it's quite fascinating. It's it's the opposite. It's quite fascinating. And my daddy say, you know, if somebody comes to your house and they're your friend, you usually say, would you like some tea? Like when you came to my house, I mean, you want some tea? It would really suck if you came to my house and I was like, this tea is delicious, man. Wish you had some tea. Right. He's like, you always give first. Right. So, There's a difference between karma yoga and bhakti yoga. Yeah. Not that karma yoga is bad because it's still a, a yoga yeah. system. It connects you, re, you know, recognizing there is a higher source. But bhakti is like connected because I just want to give love. Yeah. And people will say like, oh man, but why does God need anything from you? God gave you everything. That's true. I have, I have a, a seven-year-old son. He's going to turn eight soon. And every year on my, on my birthday, he'll come up to me and goes, dad, can I have $5? And I'll give him like five bucks. And then you'll go to a toy store with my wife and he'll go down the aisle going, what would my dad want? He wants a Lego set. And so he'll buy me like a $5 Lego set. He'll wrap it in typing paper and duct tape and write dad, giant letters and hand it to me. And it takes me forever to open up the paper and it's a pain in the ass. And when I open up, it's a Lego set, which I gave him the money for. I have no use for it, but it's the love exchange that I appreciate. Sure. So it's like God gives you the food, God provided everything, but the love exchange of saying, God, please have this first. That's where it's at. And I remember my dad. And that's what we're looking for. We're looking for that love exchange. Yeah. And we'll do it with anything. Yeah. You know, people will do it in the grossest, you know, with Tinder and stuff like that yeah. in, in a real, in a gross way. All we really want is a love exchange and we actually want it with spirit, Yeah. but we'll take anything else because we're desperate. Yeah. <laughs> we're desperate. <laughs> That's the sad it's a desperate, thing. It's a desperate for connection. Yeah. We're desperate for connection. Go on. Sorry. Absolutely. No, that's a great point. And uh, so my dad was like, the moment I knew how to offer my food, he goes, I had already learned how to say the mantras, say, God, please accept this, all that. Because I'm in this 
ashram and I run out and I'm starving. I'm so hungry. I cook this whole meal. I throw it on a plate. I bow down. I go, God, please accept this. I say all these mantras and I'm about to eat it. He goes, and my spiritual teacher, Siddha, walks in. And as I'm about to take a bite, Siddha goes, did you offer that? And I, my dad goes, oh, yeah, I offered it. I said all the mantras. I bowed down. I did the whole thing. He goes, uh-uh, offer it again. And my dad's like 17. He's like, oh, puts down his fork, gets on the floor, and starts to offer it. And Siddha's standing right over him. And my dad says all the mantras and then takes a long pause and with all his heart says, God, please have this first. And he goes, in that moment, my heart exploded. And when my heart exploded with love and this insane, insane feeling that God accepted it, Sid is standing there and goes, okay, it's offered, and walks out. And he goes, that's how you have to offer your food every time. Then your food is truly blessed and accepted. Mm. Don't be a fast food. Don't take your food like fast food. Take your time with it. Offer it. Give it. Bless it. Nice, nice yeah. way to put it. And with any endeavor that we Anything. do, any project we do, any relationship, yeah. <laughs> make it an offering. Make your marriage an offering, your, yeah. your parenting an offering, a friendship as an offering. Yeah, dovetail your whole life. So it's, I always say meditation isn't five minutes that you set aside. Meditation is something that you hopefully are doing all day long, 24 hours a day if you're doing it right. Because every action should be a devotional, spiritual action. That's it, man. That's it. That's, that's, that's the whole story right there. It's <laughs> the whole story. Be a walking that's, meditation. That's, that's samadhi. Yeah, be that's a walking samadhi. meditation. Uh, we're running out of time because we have to run to your uh, workshop. Man. I could talk to you for hours. Yeah, um, me too. I feel where, the same way. Where can uh, people find more about you? Um, Raghunath.org, R-A-G-H-U-N-A-T-H, or supersoulyoga.com. Yeah. I wanted to Super, talk about Super Soul uh, Yoga. Super Soul is our farm project we're working on now. It's our little retreat center, education awesome. on Vedic principles. You go there and take off for a weekend, come and study with us. We, place beautiful countryside setting mm. north of new york city east, west of boston it's a great place that's awesome it's just taken off this year that's super soul yo super soul farm on facebook you can look we haven't even officially opened we're opening starting our teacher training in the spring but we've had a lot of little seva retreats this year mm. and it's, it's quite ecstatic it's magic's happening for sure that's awesome um any last thoughts anything you want to share um it's not what you got. It's what you do with what you got. Beautiful. Makes all the difference in the world. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. It just came to me right now. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Raghunath. And to all our listeners, thank you all for tuning in. Until next time, namaste. Namaste. Thanks.